0: As I mentioned here in verses 7 through 13 of Romans chapter 15, Paul brings the great truths of God's plan of redemption, his plan for the ages and for all eternity, to a glorious conclusion of praise, of rejoicing, of joy, of peace, and hope. This really is the high point of this whole letter of Paul's to the Romans. This is the top of the mountain. The mountain of God's truth that we have been ascending with the Apostle Ever since we first started studying the book of Romans, which was two years ago this last June, maybe sound like six years or feels like six years to some of you. But before we get into this text of scripture, I want to review what we have been, where we have been so far with this Paul on, on, on his journey with him. So I want you to think about the church in Rome for a moment the church in Rome. It was a divided church. It was Jews and Gentiles. First of all, it was primarily a Jewish church. Uh, People had come from Pentecost where they'd been saved. They'd gone back to Rome. Others had been led to Christ. It was primarily a Jewish church. And then the Jews got kicked out of Rome by Emperor Claudius. And then it was fully a Gentile church. And then Nero allowed the Jews to come back. And then it was a Jewish Gentile church again, but it was dominated by by the Gentiles. It was a divided church at the heart of the Roman Empire. They were divided over whether to eat meat or vegetables only. They divided over which days to hold sacred. And they divided over a host of other non-essentials, mostly have to do with cultural matters. So the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians were not meeting as one church. They were not functioning as one church. The ancient division between Jews and Gentiles remained. And they judged one another based on those differences. They criticized one another. Paul even says they despised one another. So Paul spent a chapter and a half telling these two groups that they must accept one another. So that's where we see it again in chapter 15, verse 7. Paul had already said this at the beginning of chapter 14. And then as he's bringing this to a conclusion, he says once again, therefore accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Paul is writing to unite Jews and Gentiles together as one church, united under Jesus for the glory of God. That they would glorify and praise God as we talked about before as one voice. That they would be one church at the heart of the empire of Rome. So let's think about Rome for a minute. Ancient Rome. In Rome, they declare Caesar is Lord. Caesar is worshipped as a god. He is Lord. Caesar has brought the nations together under the authority of Rome. But Caesar has done so through the power of the military, their might, through threat, through bribery, coercion, all you have to do is just read some of Shakespeare's plays and you get an idea. You know, one of the, Julius Caesar was uh, stabbed to death 52 times on the floor of the Senate in Rome. That, that's how they got, they got power. Political intrigue, all this that tells us that Caesar was a false lord, a false lord. But the Christians in Rome say that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. So what does that mean? What does that mean in uniting together Jews and Gentiles under the lordship of Christ, not under the lordship of Caesar? What does that mean? What does it mean to unite people from every tribe, nation, and tongue under the lordship of Christ for his glory? You see, that is the great theme of Paul's letter to the Christians at Rome. And it's the great theme of the entire of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, like we are saying this morning. By way of his plan of redemption, God unites people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue under the lordship of Jesus Christ of the glory of God. So to help us understand that, I want to review God's plan of redemption and his plan for the ages. And I want to do it in the form of a picture book. As if we're opening a book with pictures. I'm, I'm glad most of the kids are here today because this is, this is a good Sunday for, for you guys to be here because even as adults, we're going to see this maybe through different eyes this morning. And I've adapted the picture book idea from a British pastor by the name of Jared Hemings. And uh, he pastors a Reformed Baptist church in England, just outside of England. I couldn't even pronounce the name of the town. You know, they put all these names, you know, and stuff together. But uh, I like the way that he presents God's plan of redemption as a picture book. And so so I've added some stuff. I've changed some stuff. But I just want to give him the credit for this wonderful picture book idea. So this is how I see it if it's a picture book. we We open the picture book and we see page one. What do we see on page one? We see a beautiful kingdom. We see lush trees and and vegetation. We see rivers and fish and birds and animals. You can almost hear the Disney uh, animals and, and birds singing and stuff. You know, those kind of things. And It's a beautiful kingdom. And in this beautiful kingdom, there's a beautiful garden called Eden. Eden. And there's a king. A ruler whose name is Adam. And Adam has been given dominion to rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky and the cattle and over all the beasts and everything that creeps on the earth. And we turn the page to page two and we are shocked. We see a ruined kingdom. The trees have been chopped down. The rivers are polluted. The fields have been burned up. The animals are sick and dying. There's plague among the peoples. And Adam is looking very old. He's very sad. He's lost his crown. Something is very wrong. And Adam is even under a death sentence. He and the entire world... Or under a curse. In fact, it's the curse of God. Brought on because of Adam's, the king's sin. And to make it worse, and even scary, frightening, for a children's book, picture book, there are two giants in the land. And it's two giants who rule over the kingdom. One of them is called sin, sin. And the other is called death. And behind these two giants and using them is a great monster. The god of this realm. And the monster's name is Satan. Page three. The kingdom is still ruined, but now there are children living in the kingdom. They're the children of Adam. And they are also children of the curse and they too live in fear of the great giant sin and death and they are under the rule of the monster and it's a desperate picture and as you look at them you wonder who's going to save these children who's going to save them who's going to save these children of Adam so we turn to page 4 and on this page one of Adam's children is smiling He's smiling. His name is Abraham. He's smiling because he has a promise from God. One of his descendants will save the world. And God said to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. No wonder Abraham is smiling. The people who are living under the curse will be blessed. Abraham, one of your descendants will bring the blessing of God. And it's a promise that God repeats to Abraham's son, Isaac, and to Isaac's son, Jacob. It's a promise that's given to the patriarchs. It's the promise of a savior, a savior who will overthrow the monster Satan and will defeat the giants of sin and death. He will make an end to the curse and he will restore the blessing of God to Abraham's descendants. And not just to Abraham's descendants, but to all the families of the earth and God repeats the promise that all the families of the earth will be blessed in Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 God says to Abraham in your seed in your seed Abraham one of your descendants literally uh, singular in your seed one particular descendant Abraham all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice So we quickly turn to page five. We want to see who this descendant might be. And on page five, you find a family tree. You've seen these before. And we trace Abraham's line to Judah. And we trace Judah's line to a king. And now we think, now we're getting somewhere in this story. And we see a king. His name is David. And David rules in Jerusalem. And next to David in the picture book is the Ark of God, the presence of God. So David is reigning at God's right hand. David is the anointed of God. It means the the Messiah, the Mashiach of God. David is God's visible representation on the earth. And under King David, the people are blessed. And David didn't just rule over Israel, he ruled over other nations as well. And David has an empire that grows. And in fact, David invites the nations to come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord God. Maybe David is the promised Savior. Or maybe it's David's son Solomon, whom God called my son. And Solomon ruled over even a greater kingdom, and it was the golden age of the kingdom. And in this empire there is peace. There is blessing. But as we trace the line of kings, we find that after Solomon died, and his son, and the next son, and so on, and so on, for many generations, the line dies out. Maybe it's the end of David's line. Maybe it's the end of the hope of a Savior. So we turn over to page six, and at last he comes the promised one. And we trace David's line to a child, a child born in Bethlehem, which is what? David's city. And he's the legitimate heir. He's the legitimate king, and his name is Jesus. And when he comes, the faithful are waiting for him. They've been waiting for him for, for centuries, and including his own mother, Mary. And she said in her psalm of praise upon finding out that she would bear the coming Messiah, she said, The Lord has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Mary knows that her child is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. Then there was the news to the shepherds. Remember the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you great good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people, all the people, not just the Jews, not just the descendants of Abraham, all the people, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. The curse is going to be broken because Abraham obeyed the voice of God. And the angel continued, for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. The promised one has finally come. You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The curse will be broken. And then there's the age Simeon in the temple where they took Jesus on the eighth day of his birth. I like to talk about Simeon as kissing all the babies and scaring all the mothers. (laughs) Simeon held this baby, Jesus, and prophesied and said to the Lord, Lord, my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, to everybody, and the glory of your people Israel. There it is again. It's not just Jews, the seed of Abraham. It's all people. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And as Jesus grows up and begins his public ministry, what do we see? We see him driving back the curse. In establishing a new kingdom. A kingdom that comes from outside of this world to take over this world. And the kingdom is called God's kingdom. The kingdom of heaven. And wherever the king goes, we see the demons fly. The monster is on his back foot. We see the sick healed. Even the dead are raised. And incurably wicked sinners meet with the king and their lives are transformed. Forever. Here is the promised Savior, and He is bringing blessing. And we turn over to page seven, we once again see a shocking picture. Because the monster fights back. Because Satan still rules over the nations. So what does He do? Satan unites the nations against the king. He unites Jews and Gentiles, Herod, Pilate, Caiaphas, to rid the world of the king. And they nail him to a cross and he dies. Our great hope, the king who is going to change the world is dead. The king is defeated and the monster has won. Or has he? But the book is not finished. Page 8. The king does what? He rises from the dead. He ascends to a throne, not in Jerusalem, he ascends to a throne in heaven at the right hand of God, at the right hand of the Father, where he is crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. And on account of his resurrection, he now he has even greater authority. He is the Son of God seated at the throne of the universe. His power is invincible. His rule is unchallengeable. And it was by his death he conquered sin. He has conquered Satan. He has conquered even death itself. And by his death he made an end to the curse. And now from the throne he sends down his Holy Spirit. And he sends out his messengers, those whom he saved. And they go out with the good news that Jesus saves And all that bow the knee, whether they are Jew or Gentile, are blessed. And one day there will be no more curse for all of creation. And the way Isaiah put it, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace or the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. So that in picture book form... Is the plan of redemption. And in Romans chapter 15, verses 7 through 13 that we're going to look at, the Apostle Paul is calling on us as believers, whether Jew or Gentile, to rejoice with one another in God's plan of redemption. But in order to do that, in order to rejoice with one another in this glorious plan, we must first accept one another. We cannot rejoice with one another if we don't accept one another. We cannot praise God with one voice if we do not accept one another. So Paul says in verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 7, Therefore accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision. There is a servant to the Jews, a servant to the descendants of Abraham. Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth, to confirm the promises given to the fathers, verse 9, and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. Jesus fulfilled the promises made to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now the Gentiles can glorify God as well because of the mercy that God has showed to them. I think probably for the most part, most of us here are 100% Gentile. Some of us might be 50-50. <laughs> you know, I've got the Kaufmans back in Germany way back when, you know, who we were Jewish. I got a little bit, but I, I'm Gentile. You know, and we're Gentile by, by, by culture. God has shown his mercy to us. Take that upon yourself. Take God's mercy on you. And this is so cool. God's redemptive plan was that through the Son, born as a Jew as to his human nature, that God might reach out his reconciling love to those of every nation under the sun. It was God's plan all along to fulfill his promises to the descendants of Abraham, and it was God's plan all along to include the Gentiles, to have mercy on the Gentiles. So to make this point and drive it home as a point of rejoicing, as Paul finishes up this this section, which began back at Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul launches into a series of quotations from the Old Testament which support glorifying God for his mercy to the Gentiles. Verse 9, And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. This is a quote from Psalm 18, verse 19, where after the Lord delivered the psalmist from his enemies, we don't know exactly what his enemies enemies were, but the psalmist, now that he's been delivered by God, he wants to go out into the midst of the Gentiles, into the midst of the nations to tell everybody he can and sing the praises of God. To everybody. And it's a psalm of victory. It's a psalm of victory, of praise to God, which is to be sung throughout the whole world. That now through Christ, as Paul uses this psalm here in verse 9, the enemies of sin and death and Satan have been defeated, the curse has been broken, the Savior has come, the kingdom has come, and now Christ rules as King of kings and Lord of lords from his throne in heaven. And we have a hymn in our our hymn books that that really points to this, that expresses this praise to God. You might recognize it as, as I give you some of the words. We have a story to tell to the nations that shall turn their hearts to the light. A story of truth and mercy, a story of peace and light, a story of peace and light. For what? The darkness shall turn to dawning and the dawning to noonday bright. And Christ's great kingdom shall come on earth, the kingdom of love and light. In case you want to know what's in the storybook, that's page eight (laughs) in the storybook. So the psalmist praises God among the nations. And next Paul shows us that God calls the Gentiles to rejoice with Israel. Verse 10. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles with his people, rejoice with the descendants of Abraham. And this passage comes from Deuteronomy, and it's a psalm of Moses. And it was on the occasion of when Joshua is commissioned to lead the people in victory as they go into the land that God has promised them. They are to claim the promised land with Joshua as their leader. And it's a psalm of victory sung by Moses for God's faithfulness in past victories And for his faithfulness of what he's going to do in defeating the the enemies that are ahead. And so Moses ends the psalm with this phrase, Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He'll render vengeance on his adversaries, and he will atone for his land and his people. So once again, because of God's mercy, the Gentiles are able to praise God with the descendants of Abraham. And the third Old Testament quotation is simply a call to praise. Verse 11. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. That's from the 117th Psalm, and it continues in Psalm 117. For his loving kindness is great toward us, and the truth of God is everlasting. Praise the Lord. And then a key to this passage is in verse 12 of Romans chapter 15, where Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. Verse 12, he says, and Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles hope. The root of Jesse. You know, in the Middle East, where there's a lot of drought, a lot of time. And when there is a drought, that goes on for months, and maybe even more. If there's a drought that's going to threaten the life of a plant, the root remains underground safely in the the nurture of the ground. You know, the ground pretty much, you go very deep. It stays about 40, 42 degrees all the time. You know, as it gets closer to the surface, it, it heats up, of course, in the sun. But the root remains underground where the plant can survive until it's nourished by rain once again. See, here there was a long drought until the root of Jesse, the father of David, sprung up. And so after this long drought, from a household that looked far away from being royal, after a long drought, a household of a poor family, Mary and Joseph, after a long drought, From the root of Jesse would emerge God's Messiah, the Christ. And the point of Paul's quotation of Isaiah here is that the Messiah would be the one in which the Gentiles could set their hope. For Gentiles, as for Jews, it was the descendant of Jesse who would be the Savior. The root of Jesse will rise to rule over the Gentiles. That means he'll be a mighty king. He'll rule over the Gentiles. But he's not going to be a tyrant like Caesar. For the Gentiles will hope in him. And then as Paul does so many times in his letter to the book of Romans, Paul ends this section of Romans that goes all the way back to the first chapter of Romans with a benediction. A prayer wish wish for the believers in Rome. Verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God does not want their differences in Rome to take away their peace and joy. To take away the peace and joy that they should be experiencing as children of the kingdom. As joint participants in the kingdom of God. Look at uh, chapter 14, verse 17, here in the book of Romans. 14, verse 17. Because here we have a definition of this kingdom that we've been talking about. It's not the only definition, but it's a pretty clear definition. For the kingdom of God is, you know, that's like saying a cookie is, or, you know, whatever it is. We're defining it. How would you define the kingdom of God? And he says it's not eating and drinking because they were dividing over whether to eat meat or not meat or only to eat vegetables, what days to to worship and those kind of things, hold secret. It's it's not that. It's not these non-essentials. But the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It is only as the God of hope fills us with peace and joy that we are able to abound in hope. To realize the hope that we're a new people of God. In which Jews and Gentiles praise God with one voice. But as we conclude, I don't want you to miss what Paul says here in verse 17. He gives us that definition of the kingdom of God of God. He has told us what the kingdom of God is. So I would like to add an appendix, appendix A, <laughs> to the picture book. Now what does an appendix do? You know, you're reading a book and, you know, the appendix fills in some of the blanks that they don't have time or don't want to take to, to put in the regular part of the book. So they'll add an appendix. Appendix A, the kingdom of God. It is righteousness, It is peace. It is joy in the Holy Spirit. And and that's what we all want, right? That's what we're all looking for. Because it's when we have that, we abound in hope, in the power of the Holy Spirit. In a moment, as we take, uh, participate in the Lord's Supper together, I'm going to add an appendix B. (laughs) An appendix B to to the, to the picture book, but let's, at this moment, go to Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, I just trust, Lord, that your Holy Spirit has made this so plain to us this morning, Father, and that we understand what the kingdom of God is and why Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Father, I can't even imagine the sacrifice of the King of kings, Lord of lords, God of very God, taking on human nature. So he could die in my place on the cross. That in receiving him, I might enjoy the peace, the joy, the righteousness of the forever kingdom in the presence of God. Father, we thank you for your grace. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.